Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. It's Monday, February 26th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. So marijuana is now legal in California, and that's going to, you know, potentially change the landscape. It's already there are already dispensaries popping up all over uh, San Francisco where, you know, near where I live. And it's kind of amazing to watch. All you need to do is show your ID. And this is true in many states across the country now. Yeah. So we're seeing a real kind of shift in the way that uh, certain drugs are being consumed. And yet there's still a paucity of research of how a lot of these psychoactive drugs affect the brain and what the potential side effects are. You know, I'm not necessarily saying that let's all be naysayers, because after all, alcohol has a lot of deleterious effects on the brain and the, and the rest of the body and it's legal and you know it's still the ca- it's it's you know still causes many many deaths every year but at the same time we just haven't studied psychoactive drugs and that's partly been because we haven't been allowed to yeah i mean most of these drugs that you're referring to are still listed as schedule 1 by the federal government which makes funding for research into its causes and effects very complicated to obtain Um, But I have been impressed that there's lots of communities out there that are doing a form of research. If you can't feel the air quotes through the through your audio uh, right now, it but these are communities that are trying to study the effects of this, at least in their limited capacity that they have. And true to the history of how psychoactive drugs have been studied in the past, it's often been by a individual using themselves as the subject. And so I wanted to meet a sort of modern day scientific researcher who uses himself as a subject and sort of talks about it and and sort of helps us understand what the effects have been uh, of various drugs on his own body. Did you find the Morgan Spurlock of drugs? (laughs) I don't know about that. But I found Hamilton Morris, uh, who, if that name sounds familiar, is the son of documentary filmmaker Earl Morris, um, which is also probably why he is particularly good on camera and putting some of his stories onto the small screen. Or I guess, what what do we call, you know, internet these days? I think just the internet still. still. Okay. (laughs) 
So Hamilton Morris is an American journalist. He got his start writing for Vice magazine. Uh, he had a print column, a monthly print column called Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia. And that eventually evolved into a series of articles and now documentaries. You can watch Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia now on Viceland. And so I talked to him about the experiences that he had putting together the show and also a sort of the nitty gritty of the different kinds of substances that he has experimented with. So that'll be at our interview for today. Let's take a short break and we'll be back with my discussion with Hamilton Morris. Hamilton Morris, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit about how you got interested in uh, looking at the science behind psychogenic substances or psychoactive su- substances. Where did, where did the first impetus to take a deeper dive into the science behind uh, these chemicals come from? Uh, in some sense, I've always been more interested in the science than using the drugs themselves. I wasn't really someone that used a lot of drugs when I was in high school because I was too afraid of them. And I remember reading a profile of this chemist, Alexander Shulgin, that was in, I believe, the New York Times Magazine at the time, and reading that this chemist was synthesizing a really amazing variety of different psychedelic substances that had diverse effects on consciousness, and immediately thinking, well, that's pretty fascinating that there's a drug that will semi-selectively distort the way sound is perceived, or there are drugs that distort the way time is perceived or will distort color perception in one way or another and thinking that it was really cool and I wanted to learn more about them. So it was it was actually Alexander Shulgin and his work that made me interested in all of this more than the drugs themselves, I would say. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting that uh, you bring that up as re- it relates to consciousness, because for a lot of people, consciousness is just this single entity that, you know, you either have it or you don't, you're either conscious or you're not. It's a kind of light switch that you turn on. And they also feel that it's the most likely candidate for, you know, some kind of bodily substance or thing that exists beyond the death of the body. But as scientists, uh, especially from the neuroscience perspective, you know, there's a a lot of evidence that that's obviously not the case, in particular, um, in the ways in which we can titrate consciousness with drugs. Uh, So anesthesiologists, for example, um, you know, that's their job is to not necessarily make sure that a person uh, is paralyzed, but rather that they don't have a conscious memory of what it is that's being done to them. So... Uh, and yet, from a, from a neuroscientist's perspective, not being able to use these drugs in ways in which we can study consciousness seems to be a big obstacle. And that's exactly what, what's happened over the past couple of decades as these substances have been banned. Um, so what can you tell us about sort of the ban on the scientific study of uh, psychoactive compounds in humans? You know, it's been a a really tragic loss of a tool set that has been developed over at least, you know, a century and arguably millions of years that allow us to pinpoint certain aspects of conscious experience, modulate them and assign a pharmacological basis for those changes. Uh, I think it's really interesting that if you have a compound that is able to selectively distort 
maybe one aspect of your color perception or, you know, more easily to understand one aspect of your taste perception, then you can assign a molecular basis to these precepts. And that's a, a really useful thing. I mean, we get so caught up in the political aspects of well, what if they're dangerous? What if they hurt people? What if they're addictive? But in some sense, these questions are, are completely irrelevant to their value as scientific tools. And the fact that scientists have had their tool set limited by prohibition is tragic. You know, on one hand, you could say prohibition is so purposeless, it doesn't prevent anyone from using drugs. And that's absolutely true. Virtually all of the illegal drugs are used just as frequently as if they were illegal. That's, you know, making heroin a schedule one drug hasn't prevented anyone from using it. But there is one population of people that have been really seriously impacted by prohibition, and that's scientific researchers. Yeah. Um, and, you know, ironically, these kinds of substances have not been shown to be particularly addictive compared to, say, opioids uh, or opiates. Uh, so is that where we still are in terms of a lot of these psychoactive compounds that we don't believe that they are physically addictive and even psychologically? So what, what are the chances that, you know, people can get addicted to these kinds of compounds? You're talking about psychedelics? Yeah. I would say for the classical psychedelics, not only are they considered to be non-addictive, there's evidence that they actually interfere with addiction to other non-psychedelic substances. So there's some preliminary work that shows that psilocybin is effective as a treatment for smoking cessation. Um, in the 60s, there was work being done on LSD for treatment of alcoholism. And yeah, it's pretty clear that they can actually help people who are addicted stop using these substances that have become problematic. And so do you have any reservations for, you know, let's say if you have uh, someone that you care about very deeply asking you whether they should uh, experiment with some of these drugs, do you fear for anything uh, for them in terms of the potential health, negative health outcomes? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not an advocate in the classical sense of the word. I don't think that anyone should or shouldn't use these substances. That's not my decision. And I don't want to take any stance on that issue. And, you know, as someone that has spent their entire adult life studying these substances, talking with people that use them, I'm acutely aware that not everybody has a positive experience, that in some instances, tragic things do happen. Whether or not you can truly blame the substances for those in, for those tragic events, it's hard to say. My best friend, when I was a, a freshman in college, had a, a psychotic break after taking 44 milligrams of a, a substance called 4-ACO-DMT. And, it, you know, it's very hard to prove any counterfactual situation. I don't know if he would have had this psychotic break if he hadn't used this substance. Um, but I was with him when it happened. And it's something that's stayed with me my entire life. Um, I... If I had to guess, I would say that, you know, he had a, a predisposition for psychosis and that this would have happened anyway and that this was just something that precipitated a latent psychosis. But, you know, in some sense, you can never really know. And it's important to keep in mind that these are very powerful substances. They're not to be taken lightly. They're not... Um, a cure-all for all of society's ills, but at the same time, they're extremely valuable and and should be investigated. And on top of that, you know, there, there isn't a lot of room for 
nuance in these discussions. You see this with cannabis all the time. Everyone is, is rightfully so infuriated that cannabis is a controlled substance that they want to promote it by saying, look, it's a cure for everything. Look at all the things CBD does. Look at all the things that CBN does. Look at all these amazing things that can come out of cannabis. And, uh, and I understand the motivation, but once you start exaggerating the therapeutic properties of these things simply because you don't want them to be prohibited, you're just as bad as the people that have exaggerated about the, about the negative aspects of them as well. So I think it's important to do your best to be balanced uh, because really, if we're going to move forward, we have to be honest about both the positive and negative aspects of these things. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a, a great point about uh, cannabis. I have the same irritation uh, because then it's it's hard to trust any science from someone who is coming and saying, oh, it's a panacea <laughs> when you know that's not the case. In fact, there are negative side effects, but there are also neg negative side effects to virtually everything else we consume. <laughs> um, so, you know, and, and, and it's it's a great point that you make, too, about a potential genetic predisposition in your uh, friend. Like it's, it's fairly well known that PCP can trigger uh, the onset of symptoms of schizophrenia but only in people who have the genetic predisposition for the disease. Uh, you know, there is a, a large component that's hereditary. So, so although, you know, some people can go their entire lives with the genetic predisposition and never show symptoms because they don't, uh, they don't, they're not exposed to trauma or, you know, a psycho, a psycho, psychedelic drug. But, um, so yeah, there's an argument to be made, you know, whether or not your friend would have ultimately had a psychotic break, um, or not. It's a, it's a question, um, but that doesn't mean that everyone who takes them is going to have the same outcome. And, and I face this same issue all the time. I made a piece about this Thai plant. It's a tree called Kratom, and it's sort of on the cusp of prohibition right now. And there's a lot of people that are dependent on this plant because it's, it is an opioid. It is a habit-forming substance, although it's quite a bit safer and is not as addictive as most other opiates. And, you know, everyone doesn't want it to be prohibited. And I completely understand that. There's no question that it should not be prohibited. Putting this in Schedule 1 would be a huge mistake. And it would prevent a lot of people from having access to a substance that they depend on that it, from a harm reductionist standpoint is making their life a lot better. At the same time, I don't want to be saying that it's a cure for all of society's ills, even though that's what people feel like they have to do. They have to take this extreme stance to prevent it from being prohibited. And everyone's in a, in a really kind of tricky situation where I think they're um, torn between wanting to be responsible and wanting to do whatever it takes to prevent another plant, another substance from being placed in Schedule 1. So let's talk a little bit about the different classes of psychedelics. I mean, are we at a point now where we can start to look at, say, uh, the molecular structure or uh, the impact on certain uh, receptors in the brain and sort of classify uh, psychedelics into different categories that are meaningful? Absolutely. And we actually have been for quite some time. You know, the word psychedelic is interesting. It doesn't have a widely agreed upon definition. It's used as a label for a pharmacologically and chemically diverse series of substances. You have drugs that bind to the GABA-A receptor that are called psychedelics. You have drugs that bind to a series of different serotonin receptors that are called psychedelics. You have drugs that bind to the kappa receptor, the kappa opioid receptor that are considered psychedelics. You have glutamatergic NMDA antagonists that are called psychedelics. These are very different substances, yet 
we feel comfortable calling all of them psychedelics. And I think that in and of itself is really interesting. Yeah. So I guess what what joins all of these things together is that they have some tendency to create uh, hallucinations. Is that is that the main sort of thing that joins them in, in a, into a category? That is certainly a common feature of them. But, you know, people also call cannabinoids psychedelics, which are not typically hallucinogenic people. You know, it's, it's hard to put your finger on what exactly it is that makes a psychedelic psychedelic. But if you had to name one thing, it might be hallucinations or maybe a sort of tendency to enter a, a state of consciousness that's more reflective and disconnected from uh, typical thought patterns that characterize sober consciousness. So in your uh, pharmac- pharmacopoeia, is that how you pronounce it? Pharmacopoeia <laughs> uh, show on Viceland. You talk mainly about, or at least uh, the episodes that I've seen have been on plant-based psychedelics. So peyote, um, those from the psychedelic toad, uh, various places in which, uh, you know, the, these, these substances have been discovered and, and that they come from plants. To what extent is that uh, being overtaken now by synthetic substances? Or is it still mainly we get, you know, the, the, the core of a particular new drug comes from a plant and then, you know, we, we take bits of it and make synthetics or is there or are there classes of synthetics that now are completely new uh, that have sort of unique features? I mean, all, all of the above, you know, people still use all of these botanical psychedelic compounds that have been in use for hundreds of years and medicinal chemists in the mostly in the 20th century began to modify the structures of these compounds to study the structure activity relationship. So if you have mescaline, it's, you know, you have, it's a a phenethylamine based compound, three methoxy groups. What happens when you start modifying that structure? Well, early on, they found that if you make it an amphetamine, that it becomes quite a bit stronger. And then they found that if you start to change the position of these methoxy groups, you can further modulate the activity. And, you know, this is what medicinal chemists have been doing since the beginning of medicinal chemistry, you're inspired by nature. Nature is generally the template that we use to create new medicinal compounds. And if you look at, you know, most of the currently used therapeutic substances, the majority of of them can be traced back to some sort of natural product. So nature serves as the inspiration. And from that point of inspiration, people go on a, on a journey, a chemical journey a structural journey to see how things can be further improved. Um, Maybe one interesting exception would be the dissociative anesthetics, which uh, actually were first synthesized, as is often the case, as a a part of a uh, study of natural products. So it, it used to be the case before more advanced analytical techniques were invented, like NMR, that a chemist would have to synthesize references of anything that they suspected might be in a plant. And then they would look at the physical properties of this reference and see if it matched whatever it was that they had isolated from a plant to see if it had the same boiling point, the same melting point, the same physical properties. And it was often the case in these investigations that they would semi-accidentally discover new substances. So for example, DMT, which is the active ingredient in ayahuasca, was first synthesized um, in an effort to characterize the structural the structure of natural products that were isolated from strawberry plants by a chemist named Richard Mansky. Um, DMT had never been found in nature at that time. It was an attempt to 
find they were looking for something completely different. And then later they found it in a Brazilian tree that had a long history of human use. So it's there's a, an interesting interplay between synthetic organic chemistry and natural product chemistry trying to sometimes it's the case that people first find it in nature sometimes they first find it synthetically and then later find it in nature but what i was saying with the uh with the dissociative anesthetics even though they were first discovered in this field of natural product chemistry they've never been found in nature really there's a, there's a couple nmda antagonists that are are natural products like ibogaine but uh nothing like ketamine exists in nature and so it's been a, an interesting task culturally to figure out what to do with these things uh, with something like peyote or mescaline you can point to all sorts of indigenous groups the huichol the, the uh, american indians you can and say look they've developed this tradition this is the best way to use mescaline containing cacti uh, you can't do the same thing with ketamine and so it's, it's been an interesting process for humanity to figure out whether or not these things are safe because you can't point to a 100 or 200 or 1000 year history of human use. You know and it, and it brings us back to that question of if you can't if the scientists can't access it and you know study the effects of these drugs, you know the only thing we have to really rely on are the histories uh, of of people who have been using them uh, over the course of hundreds of years or or even just some some uh, short generations, as in the case in, in a couple of the substances that you explore on the show. So when you sort of talk to these individuals, what do you find is a common sort of set of features that people look for for what would be considered a good drug? And, and you know, what, what do they hope to get from, um, you know, ingesting these drugs? It really depends on who you're talking to. I mean, I think what's really interesting that a lot of people don't know is that in a lot of indigenous groups, the motivations for using psychedelics are actually quite different from the motivations that someone in the United States might have for using a psychedelic. If you look through the anthropological literature, you'll find that people often use things like ayahuasca to locate lost objects or to um, cure certain diseases that we would not even consider diseases by our cultural standards. So this kind of this contemporary idea of self-exploration or entering some sort of cosmic consciousness or whatever you might want to call it is, is not something that has always been the case. Um, people have very different reasons for using these substances and it's changed over time. I don't think there is one ideal way to use these things. And, um, and, and that's one reason that I like talking to people around the world is you broaden your understanding of exactly how many different ways these things can be used. A lot of people think peyote might be best used topically as, you know, a treatment for wounds. And the same is true for uh, the bark of a DMT containing tree called mimosa hostilis. Um, that's very different, obviously, from using it as a psychedelic, yet it's still considered very useful. So I think there's, there's very broad implications for these things and no right, no one right way to do it. So there has been talk of opening up some of uh, these substances to scientific research. And I, I don't actually know, maybe you know better than I do, but where we are in terms of that policy. Um, yeah, I mean, MDMA is in 
phase three clinical trials right now. There have been a number of small pilot studies that have been done with psilocybin. There's a researcher named Robin Carhart-Harris who's doing great work in the UK with LSD and psilocybin. Um, You have work in Switzerland that's being done with LSD. There's a lot of work that's being done internationally, and I hope to see this work expanded further. Um, You know, there's an issue, not just a regulatory issue, but an issue with funding for this research because it might not have the same market value as some other pharmacological classes. But um, I think that there's a lot of scientists who care very passionately about these substances and want to see their full potential explored. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes, though, I think that it has some of the same problems of people who are interested in studying dreaming, uh, which is that we can only really talk about our dreams when we're no longer in the dream state, where our brains are fundamentally different when we're awake compared to when we're asleep. And that's really all we have is this kind of almost third third person narrative of what we think might have happened while we were dreaming. Are there ways that you can imagine we might be able to study the effects of um, psychedelics more objectively or directly uh, once once we have the ability to do that? You know, that's not really my area of expertise. I have always been very interested in, in chemistry and pharmacology. And my major interest stems from, like I said, the work of Alexander Shulgin. And he had a really important insight into all of this because I remember reading someone criticizing his work years ago and they were saying, you know, he just synthesized these compounds and then he tested them on himself and wrote about what the compounds did, but he never did any pharmacological assays. He never did any in vitro work. And why didn't he? And if he had, if he had used the experiments that were being done to characterize the activity of various serotonergic compounds during that time, all of his work would be obsolete by today's standards because the methods evolved so quickly that, you know, looking at the way a rat's uterus twitches when it is exposed to a solution containing this or that psychedelic is not considered valuable information anymore. But the first-hand reports of the qualitative effects of these substances, these are, are timeless documents. They'll never change. The way that Alexander Shulgin responded to 25 milligrams of DIPT in the 1970s is, is and always will be valuable. So I think that there's a, a major disconnect that we have. We, we understand these substances on a molecular level. And we're coming to a better understanding of the molecular neuropharmacology, um, what they do in terms of downstream activity when they bind to this or that serotonin receptor. But when it comes to this larger understanding of what the impact is on human consciousness, as far as I'm concerned, I think that people's verbal reports or written reports are more illuminating than a lot of the most sophisticated contemporary neuroimaging work. But that's just my my take on it. And like I said, I'm I'm a guy that really likes the synthesis aspect and likes the, the pharmacology aspect. And neuroimaging has never been something that I've been a part of. You know, I've never worked in a lab that, that does that sort of work. Um, and it's just it's always seems sort of inaccessible to me. And its explanatory value, I think, is often overestimated and exaggerated by the media. So it's something I generally just don't. I don't think it has as much explanatory value as people give it credit for. Although, of course, I think the work should be done. And uh, and I don't even know where to begin in terms of 
describing a way that that sort of work could be improved because it's not my area. You know, it's it's a really really good point that you make about um, neuroimaging, and I'm totally with you that there are times that just seeing what parts of the brain are active is just really not as interesting uh, as as a lot of other ways in which we can study the brain. Uh, that that's speaking from uh, you know a person who did neuroimaging <laughs> uh, in in my graduate work, and and I'm, I'll be the first to admit that unless it gives you some deeper understanding of behavior, understanding how the brain lights up is really not very interesting. The next sort of direction that I wanted to ask you about is one in which, let's say we now have this knowledge of the kinds of effects that that these different compounds have on our brains. Um, and we are in a place where it's pretty easy for us to synthesize them as that seems to be, you know, a hurdle that is becoming overcome more and more uh, easily. When we get to a, a place, I mean, sometimes I think about, you know, 20, 20 years down the line, these drugs or these kinds of drugs are probably going to be really easy to get. And um, a whole class, a whole, you know, a whole set of, of, of drugs will be available to anyone. So what, do you, what are your thoughts on sort of this idea of, of using drugs for cognitive enhancement, you know, so the new nootropic uh, trend and, and, you know, let's set aside the ethical question of the fact that, you know, there will be a great inequality between uh, people who have money and who have not and have access to them. And just talk a little bit about, you know, what is what is a future going to look like when we have access, easy access to all kinds of mind altering substances? You know, I find this question of inequality, this bioethical question really kind of ridiculous. We should be so lucky is to be in a position where we have compounds that are actually making people more intelligent. I don't, I don't think that uh, we're even close to that. I know that there are these nootropic substances that are being sold and used very widely, and I've used a number of them myself, but I'm not all that confident that any of them do really anything at all to enhance human intelligence. Um, and when you read these reports of people saying, oh, well, you know, I feel so much smarter. I feel so much more articulate. I can really grasp ideas better than I once could. Well, who's to say that that isn't delusional in some way? You know, I don't know if you're familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect with this idea that the less competent you are, the more likely you are to assume that you are competent at a given task. Uh, you know, who's to say that a true cognition enhancer wouldn't just make you feel abysmally stupid and would make you feel less competent than you've ever felt before. So I, you know, I, I don't even think we're at a, a place where we need to think about this bioethical question. And, and I hope that we are one day, I hope that we're in that position, but as far as I'm concerned, we're not even close. Um, and you know, there's some people that don't believe we ever will be that, that there is no way to enhance human intelligence through pharmacological means, you know, it's, you never want to say anything is scientifically impossible, but um, I don't think that there's strong evidence that it's impossible at this, that it's possible at this point. So let's let our listeners know where they can see your show. Can they go to viceland.com and watch it? Or where can they find uh, Pharmacopoeia? Yeah, it's, uh, it's available on the TV channel Viceland. And if you don't have a TV, which I don't, and a lot of people don't these days, you can stream it on Amazon or iTunes. And there's a few episodes that are freely available on YouTube, but I would just watch the full episodes on Amazon and iTunes. That seems to be the easiest way to do it. 
And what do you hope that uh, the show brings for people? I mean, wh- what what is your goal in terms of um, is it is it about telling great stories, which they are great stories, uh, or do you have some other uh, mission? There's a number of missions. You know, one is to get people interested in chemistry uh, because I really love chemistry. I think it's a beautiful thing, and I think that it's sort of tragic that it's considered boring by so many people. Um, I think that in terms of popularization of science, if more people had a basic understanding of chemistry, I think it would have a really positive impact on the world. So part of it is just to get people exposed to really cool chemistry. And and one easy way to do that is through the synthesis of psychoactive drugs, which is considered naughty and sort of extreme. And I think that the excitingness of it gets people to listen. Another thing is to make people think carefully about the impact of prohibition, what it does to people, whether or not it's really having any positive impact on the world, which I truly believe it is not. Um, And lastly, to open people's minds about the potential of these substances, um, because the potential is very broad. There's no one right way to do it. And I think that when people see the way a shaman does something in Peru versus the way a scientist does something in Philadelphia, they can start to see that there's really a wide variety of different ways to interact with these things and use them to improve your life. And what is, have you had any kind of deep understanding uh, or or some, some examples of something that you've, that's really opened your mind in a different way from having tried any of these substances? So have any of them really sort of changed the way you think about how you think? That's a good question. Um, In some sense, all of them have, you know, every single one of them is like a different door into understanding the latitude of your own consciousness. So, you know, I don't know whether or not these states are achievable through natural means. It's possible that a a very skilled meditator could um, achieve some of these states or that there are, are ways to experience them. But for most people, I don't think there's any effective way that they can know what it's like to be under the influence of ketamine short of using ketamine. And once you've used ketamine, whether or not it's a positive experience, whether or not it's good for you, at the very least, it teaches you the simple lesson that, oh, wow, that's possible, that it's possible for my consciousness to be that way. That's a different type of consciousness than I've ever had before. And it exists as a possibility within my own brain. That's very interesting because we go through our lives with our normal waking consciousness and we have dreams and that's about it for most people. So to know that there's other things out there is I think a a pretty fascinating aspect of being alive. That's a really interesting point. Sometimes when I when I teach people about consciousness, I try to, you know, tell them about this idea that you've got all these parallel streams going on, all these, you know, circuits in your brain that are active. You've got multiple drafts that are being written, and you know, whichever one you you kind of focus on in the moment, that's kind of where you sort of you dip your foot into the stream of consciousness. But it's a really hard thing to explain to someone who, you know, just has this this fundamental belief that their consciousness is one unitary thing. <laughs> So maybe I need to prescribe some ketamine. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm very interested in it in, a, in maybe a weird way. You know, I, I've taken some substances that I knew would be unpleasant simply because I wanted to know. For example, there was a, uh, a, a diet drug that was being used in the UK that was a, 
a, a CB1 receptor inverse agonist called Ramonabond, and it blocks the effects of cannabinoids, including endogenous cannabinoids in your brain. So I was th- just wanted to know, what is it like to be less high than I've ever been before, to be not even activated by the cannabinoids that naturally circulate in my body. And it wasn't a pleasant experience, but just knowing that that was possible, knowing that, okay, maybe this is what anandamide and oleamide and these other endogenous cannabinoid modulators do. It was an interesting lesson. I don't predict that's the sort of thing that people are going to be doing in school at any point in the future, but it teaches you a little something about yourself. And also maybe about, you know, someone else who, who has an affliction. So although it's a different mechanism of action, maybe it, it got you closer to understanding what someone who has severe depression might feel like when they can no longer experience pleasure. Right. Cool. Well, Hamilton Morris, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. There's a long history here with people taking drugs, taking psychoactives, trying to get an understanding of how it affects them. But oftentimes, these psychoactives, they're extremely complicated, and we're not all the same. So I want to track back to something we talked about at the beginning is like, how do we do this properly? Because at least in the US, we have a federal government that is resistant to investing in studying these. And but communities are still going to take drugs. Let's not pretend otherwise. Well, not only that, but, you know, if we're trying to really understand the brain, here is one tool that alters brain function that we can study in order to understand how healthy brain function works. I mean, you know, you don't have to have a tumor in order to change your brain. You can take some drugs and have some, you know, pretty strong effects that can teach us about how those particular drugs interact with neurotransmitters and receptors in your brain. Do you ever see a neuroscience that that would be okay to do? Yeah, so so there are a couple of issues here, right? So for one thing, you know, we don't know what the potential consequences will be on any given person. And there have to be, I think, uh, caveats in place. Because a person, for example, who has a family history of schizophrenia is at higher risk of showing symptoms of the disorder after they go, if they take psychoactive drugs, okay? So you can trigger a devastating lifelong disease uh, by taking drugs even just once. That doesn't mean so. So perhaps, you know, we have to be careful about sort of these kinds of ethical rules. So maybe you exclude people with a family history of schizophrenia from participating in your study, right? That's one one way sure. about it. And, and no one's suggesting we're going to do this in, in a traditional double blind mechanism. You why can't. not? I, why not? I actually think that we should be thinking about it that way, because otherwise there's so much introspection. There's so much like, oh, this is what I felt. I mean, you've, you're already plagued with all of these problems of study. It's like studying because, dreaming. Like we can't we can't just rely on what you tell us. Because right? this isn't a double blind study with somebody like ingesting sugar. These are like serious psychoactives that in certain cases have lifelong effects. Like, yes, but 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 so you you warn people that that's a possibility, right? But you don't tell them How do you them warn whether... somebody about a lifelong possibility? That's not a warning you can get. Well, I mean, I think I mean I think I think that's what you have to do if you really I mean, otherwise are you suggesting that we have poorly controlled studies and just people I mean, people have to know anybody who signs up for us has to be willing to take the you know, target drug, right? They can't sure. they can't be signing up and, and assuming they're only going to get placebo. But I think you should still have placebo controlled trials that are blind and randomized. Randomized for sure. Blind for sure. Double blind is where we get to a point where it becomes, I think, uh, challenging. Uh, going beyond that, going beyond the mechanisms of it. Uh, 
if I feel like we're in a position right now, given what's happening with the op- opioid crisis in this country, where literally there is a congressional report um, that came out a few weeks ago that said one town in West Virginia with a population of 3,000 people over the last 10 years got prescribed 21 million opioid pills. And we're in a place where there is some evidence, and you can hear how long I held that is, there is some evidence that that marijuana and, and certain marijuana derivatives could have a better way of controlling chronic pain than opioids, even in the ER. So... I mean, it isn't there there isn't enough evidence to say yes that's what's happening but there's enough evidence to say oh my god we need to be studying this at least yeah and i and i you know i think again i think that that there are two separate questions there and i you know it's like do we re- i don't i mean i think what you're suggesting we replace opioids with marijuana is not you know no i'm not the suggesting it. i'm i'm suggesting that we at least explore given the opioid crisis we really try take it seriously in in studying psychoactive effects on yeah and but i think also we need to take a page from the opioid crisis and learn from it which is that you know we can't just you know give people access to a drug without without thinking about potentially also understanding how we're going to deal with their withdrawal how we're going to deal with you know tapering down i mean that's been one of the big issues with the crisis is that you know you have one physician who's responsible for you know a patient's pain and they prescribe opioids and then that physician is not in any way incentivized to worry about tapering that person off how about this idea may i think schedule one is out of date schedule one has been a hamper for scientific research for a long time. It may be effective in law enforcement, but there can't be the same set of rules for law enforcement and research. I just don't think those two marry nicely. What if a state, let's say California said, we're not going to abide by Schedule 1 when it comes to research, and we're going to fund our own research into that? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And I think that's how it should be. And I think that, again, like, you know, it's I think it is it is important to have controls so that, you know, you don't just allow you know, people to use a research lab as a way of funneling drugs to the community. That's <laughs> right? not how it works. I mean, but, there's other countries that do this, and we don't see that. So happening. they should still be controlled uh, substances. But I agree that there should be there should be a lift in terms of the ban of studying it. And then you should let the ethics boards figure out how to deal with, you know, creating ethical studies. I think in, in the world we live in, we need realistic scientific studies, whether it's about guns, drugs, other things because we're in the middle midst of public health crises around these items and we we shouldn't put our heads in the sand and ignore it so that's it for another episode i want to thank you for joining us for this installment of inquiring minds and we'd also like to thank our supporters on our patreon campaign especially trey bean david noel clark lindgren michael galgool stefan meyer awald kyle raihala joel jonathan worsley yushi lin Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. And if you want to have a slight experience of what it might be like to alter your perceptions, um, you might consider coming to see an opera that I'm directing at Caltech on March 10th and 11th for Pasadena Opera. We are presenting The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by Michael Nyman, based on the book by Oliver Sacks. Come check it out at PasadenaOpera.org. You can that visit. sounds like an opera that I haven't seen. <laughs> opera like no other before. Yeah, it's not. It's it's rarely done, but it's very cool, and it takes you into the mind of a patient who is essentially mistaking his wife for a hat. 
You can visit our website at inquiring.show. You can also support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration and partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost.